Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. No, because it's not um, that I don't trust my friends. It's it really, to be honest, like it is such a, a huge part of my life. It's, even when I was a kid, at, at the time, there were, I wasn't like making movies or anything. You know, I, I hear stories of, of people in when they're kids, they're using little um, VHS and, and Super A making films. No, I was for me, my creative outlet was drawing comic books and, and manga and writing fan fiction and put them online and getting feedbacks, you know, and, and feeling like, oh, I can connect with someone else through telling a story. Chloe Zhao still writes fan fiction, but she's come a long way from the days of live journaling. I'm Jazz Tanke, and on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit podcast, we talked to Chloe Zhao about her film Nomadland. The film became an early Oscar favorite after bowing at the Venice Film Festival earlier this year and could see her make history as the first Asian American female to win the Best Director Prize. We talked about what interested Zhao in making an American Westwood movie, as well as her new friendship with star Frances McDormand. She also reveals the challenge of juggling Nomadland while also working on Marvel's The Eternals. And later in the show, a conversation with Broadway veteran Ariana DeBose, who is now the star of Netflix's The Prom. But first, our awards roundtable asks, how many Best Picture nominations can Netflix get? It's all on this edition of Variety's Award Circuit podcast, so stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Award Circuit podcast. I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor, here today with Janelle Riley. Hey, I got my morning DJ voice on. Ooh, Jazz Tankang. Hey, I do not have my morning DJ voice. (laughs) (laughs) And he uh, called out of work today, Mike Schneider. He's not here. How dare he? Who will who will do our effortless segues? I don't know. I guess I'm going to have to take up the reins Oof. there. I'm really yeah. sorry about that. But I'm going to do my best to All hold right. up the mantle. You will be temporary master of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, happy Thanksgiving. Belated Thanksgiving. How's everyone's uh, time with family or by themselves? Whichever one ended up happening. <laughs> it was lovely. I actually caught up on some movies, but not Hillbilly Elegy. You still didn't watch it. I still haven't watched There's part oh of me gosh. that is like dreading seeing it because then I'm going to have to have an opinion on it. Oh, yeah. Do you it's, know what I mean? Yeah, it's, be- it's best to stay out of it right now. because that That's sort of something. how I feel. It's like, what if I like it? People mm. are going to think I'm an idiot. What if I hate it? I could also do the unthinkable, which is just not bother to give my opinion to anyone. I don't know what, why I think people care. Yeah. Um, Jess, how was your Thanksgiving? It was very good. It was just Jenna and myself, and we ate a lot. We I got her into The Mandalorian. I'm so <gasps> proud of that. Um, That's awesome. At, but yes, we also watched The Prom and some other films. But yep, I watched a lot. I watched like Happiest Season, um, uh, Super Intelligence, which everyone told me was like so terrible, and I kind of enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, was it? How? Yeah, I haven't watched yeah. it. Yeah. That's good. And uh, and yes, of course, the prom, which was delightful. I, I can't remember any of the songs really, but the the, the <laughs> film itself was actually very delightful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's your first segue. The prom screen hey! uh, widely for, <laughs> yes. for, for for critics. Uh, uh, it was on Sunday, um, and followed by by Q and A, and the reception was exactly as I predicted because I think musicals by nature are just divisive because some people sure. just if you hate musicals mm-hmm. there's not i don't think there's one that's going to change your like stance on it right um right. and also this is a very very happy movie and if you're not into that it's uh it can, <laughs> it can, it can, it can be a really really hard time for you if to, you enjoy pain yeah you're not going to like this movie <laughs> yeah it's the polar opposite of Requ- requiem for a dream that's what i like to say <laughs> oh my god think about that 
Can um, I but ask- no, I, I thought it, I thought it was I thought it was I thought it was utterly delightful. I thought it it did exactly what it kind of set out to do. Um, I think one of the things that I want to make abundantly clear, and while Mer- Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep and she is fantastic, this movie is utterly stolen from her by newcomer Joellen Pellman and mm-hmm. Ariana Debose. I, I disagree. Love jo- I love Joe Ellen. I think she's I so love good. Ariana DeBose. She's I love her too. a star. Yeah. I love yeah, them both. Wonderful. They were so good. And you were right. They did steal from the Queen Meryl. I'm just gonna say that and <laughs> coming from Jazz. <laughs> but it's herself. so it's, it's so colourful, right? It's everything that Mank isn't or like Requiem for a Dream. It's just utterly delightful. And I think, like you said, if you like the play, if you like the musical on Broadway, you're going to love the adaptation that Ryan Murphy's done. And if you don't like musicals, there's just no hope. This is not for you. Yeah. Can I just say, I mean, all the actors are great. They're all such a delight. Keegan-Michael Key, mm. first of all, holds his own with Meryl Streep. I ship those two so mm. hard. There's so much joy in that performance. And I know that that small town high school principal who on spring break goes to New York and packs in as many Broadway shows as possible. I yeah. just, he's just oh. delightful. And apparently with this and Jingle Jangle, carving out a little niche for himself in, in these feel-good musicals. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he's he's very, very talented. And, I, and I, I really hope this continues to lead him to better, bigger, more substantial roles because I think there is still an untapped... Uh, oh, yeah. Pro- the performance in him that is going to kick him into some serious territory. And he needs to get his own Oscar yeah. so that he and Jordan Peele can, can have matching it? Oscars. Oh, yeah. Yes. Can and, I- they just, and they just start dueling with each other with their Oscars. <laughs> They're dueling Oscars, yeah. yeah. Can I just say, Carrie Washington singing just blew me away. I did not expect her to have pipes at all. And I was like, whoa, Carrie, you're so good. I didn't even know this. Oh, well, you know, she was in The, in the Heights originally. Yeah, she goes way back with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I don't know if she actually did the Broadway production or she did a workshop or something, but like, yeah, she she's she's got the chops. And so, she's just, yeah, she's amazing. So let, let me ask, because I've been on, I was on this island by myself because I had saw the film before, oh, before Sunday about, about, a, about a best picture. No, but in regards to the just best so picture. Just so you all know, Clayton saw it first. No, for those of you this keeping is what, track. This is why predicting sucks sometimes because you're doing stuff in your predictions and people are like, where are you getting this like yeah. feeling from? And this is why I've had the prom in best picture. I think it's going to hit a cultural zeitgeist with kids and teenagers aka the kids and teenagers of oscar voters that's going to be playing in their house all december and i just feel like it's i i think it's going to be an eight niner like i don't think it's going to contend to win at all but i think it's going to do well and i can see it doing very well at the globes like oh yeah i see it getting maybe like six or seven globe nominations nicole kidman by the way is a total globe nominee like i i feel Mm -hmm. like I feel it in my bones, and maybe it won't go anywhere past that. But I feel like Zaz, um, which, by the way, uh, for anyone who didn't read the piece, was the last thing they filmed before oh, really? they got shut down. And it was the day they found out that Tom Hanks had coronavirus. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Well, she, yeah. you know, I spent the, a lot of the movie going like, huh, I wonder why Nicole T- Kidman took this role. Like, she's good, you know, and it's a, it's a fun movie. But what was in it for her? And then you get to her number, and I was like, aha. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah. I agree. I think this is like a dark horse. I think people are going to love this. Um, It's just because it's everything that every other film isn't. Like it's so joyful. It's so happy. And you just feel so happy when you're watching it for two hours. You forget about everything that's going on around you. And I think it's going to become like a a viral sensation on TikTok. And that's going to filter down into you can't escape it. Um, So... Yeah. Maybe. Uh, but I was going to say, maybe wear your crown to become a best original song contender. And Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> and the thing is, I think it tops out, uh, you know, picture, original song. I think Meryl's probably good for uh, almost to get in. Um, for an actress, Oscar? I, I think she's because clo- I think she's going to win the globe. And if she and if she if she loses the globe, then I will concede that maybe she doesn't go the way of oscar but her competition in the globe category will probably will probably be michelle pfeiffer unless um, they make carrie mulligan uh, uh oh hey look that's a segue segue Sorry. there you go <laughs> <laughs> you know, really look at you 
Um, <laughs> promising is, young woman. Yeah. Which should not. I mean, I should say that that people are speculating it will go in the comedy category. I don't think it will. I don't. That would be that would really send the wrong message. I think, although it is, it has you know darkly funny. I know, and I think I've been so weary of of speaking about it like that. Like if it went comedy, for us who have seen the movie, it's not a terrible categorization but you're opening yourself up to all the clickbait headlines that are going to be i didn't know rape was funny and mm-hmm. that's where it's going to go so they're better off just staying drama but comedy is not inappropriate it, yeah. it, i mean it's a dark comedy it ends in a very dark place but it is a dark comedy i just think they really need to nominate real true comedies in the yeah, comedy category I agree yeah and it, it does, does not fit in there do you remember what they called her a comedy let's all remember that her Five. is a comedy. I will say I find her more a comedy than Promising Young Woman. Really? There's a sweetness and a lightness to it that's built like a rom-com. Okay. You know, where he's falling in love with this girl who happens to be AI. I laughed one time in that movie, and that's the Kristen Wiig, like, phone love-making moment at the beginning least, of the movie. <laughs> at least you remember laughing. I don't even remember laughing at that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Promising Young Woman is more of a dark, a dark comedy than yeah. her is even a comedy which still blows my mind but yeah i i agree it's not yeah. it shouldn't have been categorized as comedy but yeah. i see it more than promising young woman so what do we think promising young woman is going to do because i mean i think carrie mulligan and now i've i've, I've kind of deemed this uh this um term out there she's in one nomination purgatory it's been almost a, <laughs> it's been over a decade since she's been nominated which is bananas she's not the yeah. president of that Purgatory. Jake Gyllenhaal is because Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. also does have a second nomination, which is bananas. Which is crazy. Um, there crime. are a lot of people who are in this uh, in this boat, but I feel like it could break her way, depending on if the actors branch really starts going in for Meryl Streep, Sophia Loren, um, and Michelle. Honestly, I think Carrie Mulligan has a better shot than all three of those, with the possible exception of Michelle Pfeiffer. That's good. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, I think Carrie, people will like this. Like, it will stick with them because I think Mm -hmm. I told you this was the last time I saw before before the lockdown. Her performance has stuck me this whole time. Like, it is that good and you you don't think about it and then somebody says promising I'm going to carry or you'll see a clip and you're like, wow, she was was actually really, really good in this. So... I think and she, it's unlike anything we've seen her do, yeah, or like anything else really this year. I, I'd ar- I'd argue this could be. I think this is her best work yet. Yeah. Like, mm. like it's cl- I, I come to Wildlife and Shame a lot when I think of her, yeah. but this is really close. This is like definitely upper stuff that she's. Done. I think this is definitely better than what she did in, in Education. Um, uh, yes, but I am a big fan of her performance in Wildlife yeah. and actually Suffragette. Which oh, didn't yes. get any love, yeah. <laughs> poor, poor girl. But yeah, but no, yeah, she's I think, she's fantastic. Yeah, at this time, at this time of writing, she's sitting number four in the best actress uh, rankings, and I think that's a good a good spot for her. What do you think this goes in a picture race, though? Because that's where I've struggled to see what. Because this also feels like a Brooklyn situation: picture, actress, maybe original screenplay, but that, that could just be it. It's mm. not going to get director, right? I don't. I, yeah. I don't see. By the way, I'm, I'm sure everyone knows, but the director of Promising Young Woman, uh, Emerald Fennell, is playing Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown and slaying it. Is she? That blew my yeah. mind. Yeah, she's I saw so good. I did not know yeah. She is so good. I was like, wait, she's she was on The Crown, and this is her directorial debut, yep. too, which is crazy. Yeah, um, she's having a year. Man. And, and I've heard... And, yeah. And I like the movie very much. I think her direction is ver- way stronger than the script. And I think that's where it's going to kind of end up being her, uh, where she'll get recognized as in screenplay. But her direction, like, mm-hmm. the, I mean, that movie is colorful and bold. Like, I, I hope that they will consider costumes because I think that nurse outfit is going to be a staple of yes. our future <laughs> in a lot of ways. And hair and makeup. And hair and makeup. Um, I think I have it in hair and makeup. Actually, yeah, I do have it in hair and makeup. Um, and it has a, a two original songs. I think they're in the running right now as well. They're going to be submitted, so it, it could do well. But it does in that picture. I five percent of the academy has to put it number one. That's where I always keep coming mm. back to. Like, 
do they do that? If it was a year of straight 10, which is next year, 100% this movie would be in. No questions asked. Uh, but Emerald, I think, is going to be now one of the top front runners now for DGA first time feature with Regina King. Like that is going to be, I think we're going to have another woman win that. Oh, category, fantastic. Wow. Which is that's going to be awesome. Yep. Um, any, any other tidbits, thoughts on Promising Young Woman? How promising yeah. it is? Well, no, I was just going to say, you talk about the colors and I love the production design of it because like all the pink and the warmth and everything just suggests one thing and the film's totally not that, which is such a smart thing of her mm -hmm. to do. And um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know if she'll get director. Yeah. Right. and then um oh, last yeah. topic on the on the list here is uh discussion of best picture but in relation to an article that uh that i did some research for about possibly netflix breaking a record uh long held by mgm as having the most best picture nominees in a category in 19. 30, I call it 1936. So that's when the films were released. I, I hate that we don't refer to these years correctly. But yeah, makes uh, crazy. 1936 Oscars, which was held in 1937. Uh, MGM had five Best Picture nominees that year. Great uh, Ziegfeld won. And then it was also nominated alongside uh, Libel Lady, Romeo and Juliet, San Francisco, and A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Netflix could be in a position to tie or break that record. Do... Does the, does the streamer, the new kid on the block, get to do that? And the closest, by the way, we've ever gotten to that being broken was in 2002. Uh, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, got four. Chicago, uh, The Hours, The Pianist, and Gangs of New York. And he was an executive producer on Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So he wow. like dominated that wow. category in theory. But uh, what do you guys think? Obviously, the, the big... Two that everyone feels good about that Mank and Trial of Chicago Seven will probably be there. Do you not feel that way, Janelle? Do you don't? I'm not confident of anything. Really? I have no idea what people are thinking. You know, normally uh, you can be out and about and talk to people at screenings mm -hmm. and get a yeah. feel for the room, but I, I just don't know. That's I really fine. don't. So, yeah, I think uh, Pieces of a Woman actually yeah. has a good shot at a Best Picture now. Yeah. Um, maybe that's crazy. <laughs> Maureen, I don't know. Yeah, Mark, yeah. We spoke about. The I really bloods. don't know. Well, let, 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 going through this piece by piece real quick. Uh, Mank is probably the leading Netflix contender. Can we all like acknowledge that? I think. Yeah. I think that's like. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Absolutely. of Chicago Seven keeps smelling to me like the movie that's nominated for Best Picture, and Sorkin misses director, and everyone's like, "Why?" But it also could be like, "Oh, yeah, of course it does." So we don't. We don't we don't know there, so that that could uh, do some damage in Best Picture. That would be two. Then Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I think, is their third tier contender. Mm -hmm. And by third tier, not means necessarily third tier, but I think it feels good. I think uh, the with the stat I acknowledge to that um, last fifty years, ten actors won Best Actor without their films being nominated for Best Picture. In the last twenty years, only three have. Um, so if Chadwick. If your thought is Chadwick Boseman is going to win Best Actor, pretty good bet you have to assume that the film's getting nominated for Best Picture as well. You have any? And like it or not, let's not forget Hillbilly Elegy. A lot of people really liked it, as predicted. We predicted yeah. critics wouldn't, mm. and uh, audiences yeah. would like it more. Do Do you think it's uh, extremely loud and incredibly close, like kind of surprise thing that maybe just makes it in, or like what? What do you think it does? If it, if it were to get in. I should really see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Janelle, you have a and week I, to watch it. I know. I and, and the thing is, I have a feeling I'm going to like it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And can I, I just say, by the way, like, I still acknowledge that the performances are, like, I think Amy Adams and Glenn Close are really good in it because they're good actresses. So yeah. it's hard to not, not mm -hmm. like them. It's just everything that happens around them is what is problematic. Uh, we talked Oh, okay. that's... The one that I actually think people might be sleeping on is The Midnight Sky. Everyone I know who has, are we allowed to talk about it? Sorry. Um, I think we can acknowledge that we saw it. Yeah, we can talk about that. I think we can acknowledge that it's a play. Yeah, 
I think and it's a that everyone I know who has seen it has like really liked it. And like, I think it's coming in as something that they're, they're just sort of being like, Hey, it's just fun entertainment, but it's very, I'm trying to be careful yeah. here, but let's, I'll just say that. Like, I, I would not count yeah. that. One. I would say it's the biggest thing that George Clooney has ever done in terms of scope of what he's made in terms as of a director. as a director. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, it is, I think when you when you create a film that is going to be a big tech player, and I think this 100% will be, in production design, uh, sound, visual effects, score, I think it's I think it's one of the front runners for score. Desplat has created mm-hmm. one of his best things there yet. And he has Steven uh, Medion uh, editing. I think when you start, and then obviously cinematography, I think once you start racking up that many tech nominations, Best Picture is just like a natural go-to yeah. in that in that yeah. realm. So I, I I would agree 100% with Janelle. I think Midnight Sky, I think we've kind of written it off as like, oh, because I think because Clooney's last few movies just haven't hit uh, in that director's spot the way the, we expect him to. He's also been nominated, by the way, in, in six different Oscar categories. Only one of three people <laughs> to ever do that. Wow. Yeah. So, well, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yep. Clayton, you and I are the only ones for prom getting best picture. Janelle's not with us. I don't know. I I, I just, I have no idea. And listen, she could be 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a hill I'm dying on. I just, you know, (laughs) again, it's time of recording. It's November 30th. We have five more months to go. Yeah. And to be honest, there's just, there's so much competition. Yeah. That, like, I could absolutely see the problem getting in. Okay. Uh, okay. I was going to say, I think, personally, I would take out Trial of Chicago 7 because I don't think it's as pressing and as urgent as it would have been. And I've said this before, had Biden not won the election. I think that I would take that out. And, yes, Sorkin will probably get a screenplay, but I think I'd put in The Five Bloods because I think more people will that will be like maybe right at the top of people's thinking because of chadwick and Mm -hmm. daroy lindo too who i think should totally deserve totally deserves a best actor nomination yeah uh the only reason i'm more on trial of chicago 7 i think it's probably the leading front runner for a sag ensemble and the actors branch is the largest branch of of the academy, so I think that the five bloods. No, uh, Charles. Chicago oh, Seven. Chicago Seven. Oh, the five the five bloods also has a really great. Actually, it just moderated a, a sad Q and A uh, for them. The five bloods has a really great cast, and I think that also can factor in. I think they're all in the top, you know, twenty of of contenders. Pieces of Woman. Just to end there, real quick. Um, Pieces of Woman. If it was a year of five, is a textbook loan director selection that like that the director cornell mondrosco i probably mutilated that but <laughs> janelle janelle is gonna just nod me along um that cornell would feel like a lone director nominee like the way mike lee got a nomination for vera drake um bennett miller for Foxcatcher, like that those things tend to happen and, what, and the conversation around pieces of woman you know besides vanessa kirby and ellen burson is the 23 minute one take Mm -hmm. and i think when that visionary director term gets thrown around that usually follows with something think think of powell palukowski cold war yeah still one of the craziest things i think i've ever witnessed that that made that he made it in the end for for cold war all right so with that we have a uh upcoming interview with chloe zhao nomadland Yay. Yay! The woman of the year, followed by another woman of the year, second, second, but she's still fantastic. Ariana Debose from the prom. All so are, wonderful! All, what a breakout performance! I'm so happy for her and just everything. Yeah. Like West Side Story next year, I'm just like cannot wait, cannot wait. Watch out, world! Can you imagine your first three movies being Hamilton, The Prom, and West Side Story? bananas no no i can't yeah <laughs> it, was, it wasn't yours no, thinking <laughs> just thinking just thinking all right uh so yeah for variety award circuit i'm clayton with janelle and jazz and enjoy the interviews see you next week
It's Variety's Award Circuit podcast, and I'm Jazz Tanke. Chloe Zhao is the critically acclaimed director behind The Rider and Songs My Brothers Taught Me. She had always wanted to make a road movie, especially one that looked at the American West. That was what attracted her to adapting the non-fiction book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. The film stars Frances Dormand as Fern, a widow who has been left houseless after the gypsum mine that had propped up against the town of Empire closes for good. Fern leaves and travels through America in her white van, encountering other real-life nomads on her journey. Okay, uh, what we've got is parts and labor, $2,300 okay. in tax. I just looked up the value on your van. With that high a mileage, you're looking about $5,000 at the most. I'd probably recommend um, taking that money and putting it towards a different vehicle. Yeah, so no, well, I can't do that. I can't do that, see, cause, all right. Um, I uh, uh, spent a lot of time and money building the inside out and um, a lot of people don't understand the value of that, but um, it's not something like we can, I live in there. It's my home. David Strathern and real life nomads, Linda May, Charlene Swanky and Bob Wells also star. With the film's themes of unemployment, displacement, and moving cross-country, because of the coronavirus pandemic, Nomadland resonates deeply with these times. I recently spoke to Zhao about Nomadland, her budding friendship with McDormand, her busy schedule, and her fanfiction hobby. We began by discussing how she zeroed in on adapting the story of Nomadland. Well, I've always wanted to make a road movie, and especially in the American West, because I spend a lot of time leaving my cars and camping um sort of living a quite nomadic life making my first two films so when when i read her book when fran and peter came to me with jessica's book the amount of time that she has um really focused on being with a nomadic community and really documenting the in and outs of their daily lives and how they really you know in, in a year seasonally how do they sustain that lifestyle and how do they uh form a community uh, is really an, an in really interesting characters that she's captured, uh, like Swanky, Linda May, and Bob Wells. And so when I read the book, I thought, you know, obviously Fern is a fictional character that I made up with Fran. Uh, it doesn't exist in the book, but immediately we were like, how are we going to, uh, you know, how are we able to capture what Jessica has, you know, and create a character and, and be able to link them all together? Uh, right away it was like this is going to be an interesting challenge but it's going to be one that's worth it you know now I remember when Francis gave you a shout out at the 2018 Spirit Awards I was there in that room um, and I think she she called you like her new friend had you two already started discussing Nomadland yeah we did and then we met I think for the first time just right before that and I think we really hit it off. We, we had a long day just talking and, and brainstorming. And I think, yeah, I think she said, Chloe. Like, oh, there could be many Chloe's here, but <laughs> no, we're not supposed to say anything yet. But then we were just both so excited and it was hard to contain the, the excitement for sure. I think I said something too. So. <laughs> um, I, I remember that and I love it. Um, that was a fun one, wasn't it? You know? I know, I yeah, know. Oh my year. gosh! Back in back in the day when we could all gather it, you know, <laughs> on the beach. Back to good old days. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, you know, songs my brother taught me in the rider. You know, you cast non-actors, which is something I love that gives your films a sense of realism. Um. Can you talk about how you travelled across America to find your nomads or nomad land? Well, the cast in Nomadland was really a collaboration. You know, if I divided by three, three categories, and 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 the first one would be what Jessica already included in her book. That was a big way into the community through the characters that she has met and and many years has spent with them and gained their trust. And the other thirty percent would be people 
So in a way, they're from Fran's life as well. You know, people that she brought into the project. And then the other 30% are people that through my um, development process and just being on the road have met uh, myself and then the team had gone out randomly, you know, um, people that we captured because they just happened to be there or we met them along the way and go, oh, you're interesting, come with us uh, or from my previous films. Yeah. And, you know, I can't not talk to you about Swanky. I mean, everybody who I talk to about Nomadland, the one thing that always comes out is Swanky and Swanky's monologue. What do you remember about meeting Swanky for the first time and the conversation that you had with her? I think the first time I met her was when I, I drove to Linda May's land that she bought at a time in Douglas, New Mexico, or Arizona. I forgot, but the town is called Douglas. And Swanky just happened to be there, just chilling. Uh, and that's the first time I met her. But she and I really had one-on-ones. And when I went to Colorado, met with her at the parking lot of a Planet Fitness. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. And, and that story uh, was one of the first things she told me. Uh, the, she showed me the video of the swallow that was ended up being in the film. Um, almost right away, I thought that video is going to make it into the film. And we have to figure out a way how. And, you know, whilst filming this, you didn't stay in, you know, hotels. You actually, you know, packed your bags and lived in an RV van. What was that experience like, you know, living in that confined space, being on the road, going across the America West? I, I don't want to romanticize it because that's not what we did. We didn't do it every day. You know, we did it when we couldn't have access to motels and hotels. But when we did, we stayed in hotels. But it's very different to be able to sort of, uh, you know, live a life according to your own schedule and be in that confined space with no access to to plumbing or, or water. And it's, it's another whole story where you have to meet the requirements of a film shoot be ready at a certain time. And, and so we could not afford to do that full time. Um, so, you know, being in these hotels and motels that are on side of, usually outside of a gas station, <laughs> and then sometimes parked outside, sometimes inside, sometimes it's probably more comfortable in the van RV than some of the motels we stayed in. <laughs> um, so it was a mixture uh, of, of doing both, but the, the culture, uh, that we have established within our crew, um, you know, that that is very similar to how a tribe of nomadic living would be. You know, we were very discreet and we were very much um, adjusting ourselves wherever we went, depends on how that, how people were like at that, in that area, how the weather was and what the location was like. We were just adjusting accordingly. So that's very similar to how you would travel as a tribe nomadically. But one thing that's so beautiful is just this intimacy that you have with, you know, with the nomads. You know, you're going into the way they live. Like, how did you establish that trust, getting them to open up and talk about their lives and share their stories? I think it's not that different than, than how I've done it in the past. You know, I think it's, it's how you would get anybody to trust you and listen to you. Uh, well, first of all, you, you, you listen. You know, you don't go into uh, with an idea of how you think you can change their lives and how you, you can make their lives better or what your agenda is. You know, you sort of sit down and, and, and you, you just say, just tell me your story. You know, I don't have an opinion. I want you to teach me something. That's the start. Um, and then another thing I think is important is um, a lot of times that I find, especially in marginalized communities, people um, have a set of what they think they what you might want to hear, you know, because a lot of times people do go to them with some certain agenda. So they usually give you the spiel of the things they think you might want to hear about their struggle and their opinions. And, and I usually wait until that's over. And asks things a bit more like, hey, you know, 
did you have a boyfriend in high school and what's your favorite football team and, you know you, you get on that human level and then then it, the connection actually really start because because you are talking about things that you share you have in common not the things that that divide you I mean as I said you know the one thing I love is just how you capture the American West like you know I grew up in London I've moved out here and just watching this film it just the freedom that you capture through your lens do you remember like because we don't have that you know I think we have the M25 and like the lonely <laughs> country road you have some you wild know. in the north like I have recently been there it's a different kind of wild it's a different yeah it's not as like free it's not as freeing though as a bar it's like do you remember the first time you you know you wanted to explore the American West like was there a movie or was there like picture or just something that made you want to navigate that it was uh Aaron Huey is a photographer um it was some of the photos he did he I think he walked across America on foot with his dog and he um uh it's for National Geographic I think some some of the photos were published in there it was a very very random encounter really like I saw I saw these photos and um I don't know something something clicked for me it was in south dakota these photographs on the reservation and and he i think he captured a time um i feel like is in a capsule or something you know that it's a very specific time people there's a juxtaposition of their identity and the land there that they're on um that juxtaposition is so I don't see it elsewhere as often. You know, it just feels like there's such a strong cultural identity that's specifically American. And I was looking for that for sure. Um, that's that's what first got me to to get in the car from New York City to South Dakota. I love that. I'm like, gosh, I need to do that one day. I was speaking to Joshua and yeah. he's a Brit. And I was <laughs> like, I've never done that. I kind of just want to do that after seeing this film but um freedom does come with a price you know um everything from extreme heat to rattlesnake to tornadoes to all kinds of good stuff out there <laughs> but but you know, if you look past that it's it's also some of the most beautiful um beautiful landscapes that i've ever seen in my life yeah did you experience any like rattlesnakes and tornadoes and I, I think less on, on this film because we were moving, but the few years I spent on the reservation, South Dakota, yeah, for sure. That land oh is wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just stick to the city. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have become a little more, I mean, we can get used to anything. I was so, I could be pulling ticks off of my face, you know, and, I won't even blink. Now that I've been in California for two years now, if I see a spider in the bathroom, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I think we get used to things really quickly. That's one of the human beings. I bet if you go out there, you'd be, you'd be fine. All right. I'll let you know if I do it and let you know how I, how I cope. But you filmed this before the pandemic and like it's themes of unemployment, you know, Amazon being just so relied on people packing their bags and just moving to, you know, cross country or even just being like, I'm going to take a couple of days out or a week out to spend time with nature. Um, and it resonates even more now. Um, were you surprised at how striking the film has become and how relevant it has become because of the pandemic? Um, I'm not super surprised. Uh, I think I think it's been. I think beyond that, there is something else. I, I showed the film to a director I really, really love and respect, and he mentioned something that made me think, "Oh wow, I think this might work for some folks at this time." He said, "I don't understand why I just love watching her doing laundry. I just love watching her making breakfast because she's like, because those are the things that I." didn't think mattered you know I, I but but now in the morning I wake up and make breakfast and did laundry but I accomplished something today you know I think because we have been told that we need to go so far and beyond those things to to matter you know we got to achieve so much to, to matter when 
there was a time chop wood and carry water is enough, you know, and then there is something about those little triumphs in life that we take for granted and now we're forced to slow down and acknowledge them. Um, I think that's also something that, that probably resonates with people. I remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, it just made us realize how we were going like a hundred miles per hour, not stopping. And then all of a sudden, you know, being forced into isolation and quarantine, it's like the little things that we didn't stop to realize um, really, you know, struck. Um, but you didn't just adapt the book, you know, you didn't just direct it. You also took on the editing side of it too. Um, was that because of the lockdown or had you decided uh, pretty early on to, that you were gonna step in as editor? Well, the, this movie, the way it was made, is very similar to how songs and the writer were made. You know, And I was involved in the editing process just as much as this one in the past. So uh, I, I knew that I've always done the first pass of the film. And it, because it's almost like a rewriting process for me, finding the film in, in the amount of footage that we have. So for Sounds and Writer, I was done the first pass and I knew that I was going to do for this one. Um, and as I was doing it, uh, after the first cut and the second, so I'm like, okay, I guess I can just keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it was, there was, I was thinking maybe I'll do the first pass and eventually we'll bring someone in. And maybe it's a mixture of the pandemic and also uh, it was really great working with people at Searchlight and my, my producing team, they were giving me great notes and I was doing these and, and I just didn't feel like we needed another person. What I love is that whilst you were working on this, you were also working on The Eternals, another group of misfits. So what was it like creatively going from the nomads to other end set of misfits to the Eternals superhero misfits as such? Well, technically there might be once or twice and I got those two mixed up in some of the meetings, <laughs> which is actually very funny. Uh, the, they're like, no, I don't think this, that's this movie, Chloe. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> For like the visual effects review, things like that. And I was like, wait, that's, yeah, uh, that that happens. But other than that, I, I they um, they only been really beneficial for me to to work on these two films together. You know, they when sometimes you get so locked into one thing, it's really nice to be able to force yourself to step out, to see others oh, a different world, there's a different way to be, and then come back and go, okay, you know, so creatively, it's been great. They keep each other in check. Just going back to like growing up, like was there a film that made you say, oh, this is what I want to be a part of. This is what I want to do. Or were there several films? I think it was Wong Karwai's Happy Together, that the very first one that made me want to make films the certain way, you know. And it was the first time I thought, oh, wow, you could say a lot more than was just on screen, you know, like that you, you think you capture something, but there's so much more to it um, through how you put it together. That was happy together. And then some of the early Malik films had really strong influence on me as well. I think these yeah. are. So I read that you used to write fan fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna ask you who, because that's one of the things that like we oh, I used to write. I'm writing, see that, that's the reason why it's anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole thing. Did you used to use live journal? Cause I used to write fan fiction and it's like, it was anonymous, but you never yeah. told people. No, you never tell them your pen name, no. Uh, <laughs> I've many people ask me since, but you would never find out. Uh, I just put it out there. The live journal is kind of, the, it was popular like a decade ago maybe 15 years ago, I was using that all the time. But now it's like archive of our own, you know, you know what that is. Um, mm -hmm. That would be fun. That's kind of a good, really internationally recognized fan fiction site. And fanfiction.net is still going. Um, but archive of our own is 
is the one that I used. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you'll never find out who. You will never find out uh, what my pain or what what hand uh, I write in. <laughs> but do you share it amongst like close friends? Because I have like no. cool people that you don't. Oh you, you do. Oh, good for you. You have friends you can trust. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's not um, that I don't trust my friends. It's it really, to be honest, like it it is is such a, a huge part of my life. Um, mm. It's even when I was a kid at, at the time, there were, I wasn't like making movies or anything. You know, I, I hear stories of, of people in when they're kids, they're using little um, VHS and and Super Eight making films. No, I was for me my creative outlet was drawing comic books and, and manga and writing fan fiction and put them online and getting feedbacks, you know, and, and feeling like, oh, I can connect with someone else through telling a story. Um, and that was such a big part of my life. I, I, and I, but it also has a lot, you know, it's very personal. You don't hide anything because you could do whatever you want in that world. And that's not something I'm ready to share with the world. <laughs> I I get it completely. It's like a very, you know, you'll read the comments and it's like, wow, this person really likes what I'm writing, but they don't know who I am. And they felt it's, it's, it's a great dive. Um, well, you think but, about that in the, in the film that you do put out in the world, into the world. Mm. I think about how much am I, Nav I'm navigating how much I'm willing to share of who I am into these films. You know, a lot of directors are much more braver. I think they put a lot of themselves out there. Um, you know, I think I'm a little bit more protective. <laughs> Fanfiction.net, such memories. Um, but then they killed Life Journal. We're not going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about <laughs> Still going with Life Journal. I still, uh, I, occasionally visit some old ones. Well, some of them are deleted. Yeah, it's yeah, different. Time. You just deleted thirty chapters that I wrote. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you you know what we're talking about. Well, of course, of course, it's a nice outlet, as you say. Um, so let's talk about. Com let's comment about the LGBTQ storyline that's going to be told in the Eternals because representation really matters. Um, you know, not only are you dealing with a diverse cast, you're dealing with a, a storyline that's really told in the action movies. What was that like to explore that, and what can you say about it? I know, you know, there's only so much you're allowed to say, but within that little tiny box. Um, you know, I, I think the way we're very lucky uh, to have an incredible actor to portray that role. And, 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 I, and I think for us, it's really about looking at Fasto's, his character as an individual first. Um, he is an, before anything else that, that defines him. He is a unique individual with, with his own, um, you know, pleasures and pains and struggles and and um, um, and it, it, you, you know, we don't it, you know that that's to me that's the most important thing is that that's how I want to treat him that's how we want to treat him and that's how we you know when we when we talk about him as a character that goes first so so this is as much as I can say you know uh, I think it's important, and that's that goes with Nomadland, and also you know making films on the reservation. And to me, it's like hum, human first. Um, I want to treat them not as a, uh, a issue or a a political agenda. I want to portray a unique individual first, and you can get to know them through that lens, and everything else comes as the icing on the cake. What has it been like to have Nomadland? come out in this you know this new landscape of drive-ins and virtual you know the virtual world of doing press and people seeing it virtually I think in terms of the press is of something else you know I do miss being in the space with everyone but it's also nice to just not have to compete in my pajamas at the same time but in terms of viewing the film 
I'm just so grateful that um, that people have the need to to somehow connect with each other through this. You know, if anything, this this time has taught us is that we're not going to be stopped. You know, we're going to find a way to connect with each other. That's really nice to know. Uh, whether it's through drive-ins or putting up um, theaters in the in the shopping mall parking lot, you know, or doing it online, we're going to keep going. I do miss. The, the movie theater, and I do hope that we, as you know, we, we we preserve them as much as possible, and support that theatrical theatrical experience because there's nothing like it, you know, uh, being in the space that's dark and quiet, which is <laughs> something some outdoor screenings can't give you. Uh, sorry, my my dogs are making noise, um, and then and then seeing it all. You know, just one screen, and I, I, I do hope we got a chance to see Nomadland that way. Um, people get a chance to do that safely, of course. Yeah, we miss amazing, it. amazing. Chloe Zhao, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Variety Award Circuit podcast. It was such a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Likewise. Nomadland hits theaters on December four. Tony-nominated Broadway star Ariane DeBose is now ready to tackle the features world in a big way. Not only does she boast a breakout role in Ryan Murphy's Netflix musical The Prom, but will next be seen in Steven Spielberg's updated version of West Side Story. Variety's Clayton Davis recently spoke with DeBose about working on The Prom, queer representation, and more. How did this fall into your lap? Uh, how did you get involved with, with everything? Well, I it literally fell into my lap. I was uh, working on West Side Story and I got a call asking me to come in and I'd seen the show, which I loved. And I laughed, I cried, I cried a lot. And I loved that I saw a young woman of color up there, who, like getting to the opportunity to tell her coming out story. Because I do think that we see so many coming out stories, but none of them have a face of color attached to it. Um, so I went in and I did my best. And honestly, I thought I was not getting the job. I literally called my agent and was like, don't expect to hear anything, not going my way. And then Ryan asked to meet with me and then I got the job. So just the craziest thing of life, it was weird. <laughs> that amazing. Um, and you get to work with everyone that's ever worked in Hollywood that's talented and amazing and incredible. And then you and Joel and Pellman are just these two fans. And I would say they, these discoveries, people have been learning your name coming up for a little bit, but you guys are these two discoveries thrust into this world. How, how did that feel? How, what did that first day of filming feel like for you? You know, it was sort of, it felt like an out of body experience every day, you know? I mean, I definitely grew up watching these faces on my TV screens and on film screens. And so then when you walk on set and, you know, there's James Corden and, oh, hi, Miss Meryl Streep, that's your face. It's, uh, it's very strange. You don't think it's real. And then the longer you keep showing up, it does become very real. Um, but I think what normalized it was just their humanity, right? Like they, they were so warm with us and, and tried to include us in their conversations on set. Even when we had no idea what they were talking about, they still made space. Um, I remember my first day on set, uh, I was, I said I was just very expensive background because Miss Merrill was doing, um, it's not about me. And that was, such a cool opportunity to just watch her process, watch her work. And it really was fascinating. But I was sitting there for one of her takes and you clap for Meryl Streep when she finishes the take because she's Meryl Streep. Yeah. And I clapped every single time. And then the one time that I like saw something on my skirt and was trying to fix it, I look up and she's right here and she goes, you're not clapping. Was it not good? I felt so priestly. Like, I felt like I got burned by Miranda Priestly in the face. I started sweating immediately and just got on the floor and bowed and said, I'm sorry. 
genuflect. You're like, I'm so sorry. Oh, so sorry. You're amazing. I thought it was great. I have no notes. <laughs> like, I just, I mean, what do you do? And then we laughed about it. And she was like, no, darling, I'm so happy to see you. I didn't recognize you in the look. Oh my gosh. You look, she was just nice and warm and it was great. Um, I have a small affinity with Miranda Priestly as a character. So it was kind of a wonderful moment for me. <laughs> oh my God. So it, it felt like being back on uh, So You Think You Can Dance for a second, but the roles were reversed and you were giving your notes for Meryl. That's good. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so many notes. Said no one ever. <laughs> so you were, you were born uh, in North Carolina, not from New York. I think I, everyone had a fair assumption you were from New York, but it's just because you got, there's a, the flavor always comes like, you know, especially swag. With black, swag, yeah, got got New York swag. Um, and you are you identify as Afro Puerto Rican, and your your mother uh, was is Italian. Uh, you say my mother's Af white. Mother's my mother's white. super oh. white <laughs> in a wonderful way. Super, um, white. super white in such a great way. Yeah. Um, no, I think I'm, I want to clarify that for everybody. Sure. Yes, I I identify as Afro Latina. My father is Puerto Rican. My mother is white. And for me, I just feel like this trail mix of many, many, many things. We come, uh, my people come from, you know, we have ties to, you know, the Cherokee Nation, um, you know, Europe. Yet my last name is Dubose, formerly Dubois. So there's a lot of different things going on there. Um, but at the end of the day, I still always describe myself. I'm Afro-Latina. And my mother is white, so that makes me biracial or multiracial in that way. Yeah. And, and the, re the reason why I asked that uh, specifically, I think maybe this is why I've had such a, felt like a really good connection and affinity to you. Because um, I'm also Puerto Rican, and, I'm Puerto Rican and black. Uh, but me and my sister, uh, one of my sisters especially, um, she, you know, we're, we're both Puerto Rican, but we are both different shades of Puerto Rican. Right, my, my 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 sister is very very dark skin, and people we used to walk down the street all the time, and people would never believe that we were brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And this kind of uh, friction that exists within Latino culture and Latinx culture, as now we're you know as we we try to be more inclusive, uh, is that people don't understand that we are just like how do you 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 can't generalize a population of 500 million people. You just can't, you know, we're from right. all parts of the world. And, and even though the, yes, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is our Island. My, my family's from Loisa, which is where they used to drop off all the slaves from Africa. Right. There are like a lot of dark right. people there. Uh, have you dealt with that kind of uh, internal struggle, struggle within your own culture about, who you are and then trying to, I don't want to say justify that to people who see you as one thing when you're so much more than that. Oh yes. <laughs> it's my entire existence in a way. Um, in fact, I was talking about it last night with a, with a friend and it's an ongoing process to, to reconcile the fact that there, especially in my childhood, I was, in a very loving community, but I didn't necessarily see myself, right? And so many people were like, well, you're this or you're that. My entire career has been that, like people trying to put me in boxes, the assumption that I'm African-American and that, or that I am super well-versed in one culture over another and the relationship to whiteness versus blackness. It's really complicated because at the end of the day, I don't believe someone like you or I actually has to justify our identity. We are who we are. Um, when, you, when you speak to, you know, the friction within the Latinx community, I see it. I've, I've, I've struggled with it for a long time. In fact, West Side Story was one of the first times that I got to be enveloped in the culture and really just truly feel accepted. And I felt more myself amongst that group of people because of what we were doing. We were united under a banner. And, you know, it's, I, in a perfect world, would love to see us unite 
under the banner of spectrum grace. Because you're right, we cannot, you cannot just boil down what it is to be Latina or Latino in one thing. And I think that's what's been interesting about observing the industry. It's like Rita Moreno, my queen, mm-hmm. She's, but she's also been the standard and it's a very specific look, which hasn't necessarily allowed for what this is to be considered Puerto Rican. And so that's why in this moment when Steven Spielberg looked at me, and was like, I would like you to play Anita. I was both afraid of it and so excited by it because there's never been anybody who said yes to letting this be Puerto Rican. In fact, people are like, wait, you're Latino? You're Latina? Yeah, so Latina. It like comes out like just like a word vomit, (laughs) Puerto Rican. So it, it, the journey of identity is one that I'm still on, right? And trying to invite people to join the conversation in a way that's conducive, especially during the pandemic. You had asked about the pandemic and, you know, in the conversation around Black Lives Matter and everything, it's like Afro-Latinx people, we are a part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I want to enco- encourage our brothers and sisters to join it. Because when we walk down the street, we're black. And the delineation between whether you're Latino or not does not matter. In fact, the delineation of whether my mother is white doesn't matter for me. Yeah. So it's it's that whole thing of like, no, we actually all, we have more in common than we have um, not. And our, our uniqueness is our strength. So I'm personally, I, I hope I can continue this conversation around Spectrum Grace for the next year it's like my whole hashtag spectrum yeah. grace <laughs> uh two two last questions for you uh one we we spoke about this i interviewed you uh very quickly a few weeks yeah. back um about the prom Alyssa green and what she embodies and not just from a latin uh latinx representation but a, a queer character on screen Again, not being able to see that coming out. You spoke about that uh, briefly. That uh, part of the story being spoken to our community, Black and, Lat- and Latino community. And Latinos. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. what, do, what does that mean to, to you uh, for, for that part and your personal connection with it? You know, I think for specifically for young people who identify as LGBTQ, Black and Latino, I think seeing Alyssa Green go through this process and find a happy ending gives a lot of young people a lot of hope because there is unfortunately a lot of homophobia that runs rampant within the black and brown communities. It's just a fact and it's hard. It's hard for people to feel like they're letting their families down. Like when you're talking about Latinos and you're talking about you know, black communities, very family oriented, very much talking about like, we are so proud of who we are. We're proud of what we represent, how hard we're working, all of these different things. There's a standard of excellence that's set in both communities. And somehow along the way, being gay or lesbian or trans has become something that is less than, like it is a marginalized group of people so I'm hoping that when you see this girl go on this journey and she's no different she is smart she is kind people like her you know what I mean like she's the student body president you know and and she's she's a you see her manifest in a beautiful young girl she just happens to want to be with another girl that doesn't make her a bad person it doesn't make her evil it's just part of her. It's like, we need to be just loving each other. Like there's been so much divisive rhetoric for so long. It's like the choosing to discriminate against a person based on who they love or how they want to identify is old. We have to move past it. It's the only way we change, change things within our communities and having this mother daughter duo 
I'm so grateful I had Carrie Washington to do this beside because she was like, no, let's have this conversation. Let's go for it. And the coming out scene, it's not pretty. You watch a young girl take a stand and you watch a parent go, talk about it later. Mm. It hurts. That is the norm. But when you watch these two make space for each other and you watch Alyssa have the courage to invite her parent to the table, to, to come back to the table, I hope that that is a template for a lot of young people who come from these communities who are filled with such pride or, or you know, these communities that still have these issues of homophobia. You know what I'm saying? Like that probably wasn't as poetic as it could have been, but, but I, that's the crux of it. <laughs> the Prom streams on Netflix beginning December 4. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit podcast. Preston Northrup edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. And also head to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Janelle Riley, Clayton Davis, and Michael Schneider, I'm Jazz Tanke, and we'll see you on the circuit. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.